The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 10 of the Ascent of Board Games. We are officially now in the double digits, coming up on our one-year anniversary. Uh, It's very exciting. We're still screaming into the void, but we're doing it for you. So hello, Void. Yes. (laughs) I I Void. I'm Brian. Nice to meet you. I'm Michael. I'm Joe. Jason here. Frank. Frank was very confused. We suddenly decided to go Dune-wise this uh, this episode. (laughs) All things are Dune-wise. That's the way it works. Well, there's a giant hole between you and Frank. No, no, that's where our sixth podcaster used to be. (laughs) be. We don't talk about him anymore. (laughs) Yes, but the question is, who killed him? score for Segway. There yeah, was man. a harpoon in him. I think I have a good idea. <laughs> it was the whaler. <laughs> the happen. whaler definitely could happen. But yes, this month we are here to talk about deduction games. Games when something happened and you need to figure out what it was and who done it and things along those lines. There's certainly a lot of very well-known games in this area. It's one of my favorite uh, genres. Uh, I know Frank is a big fan. Oh, yeah. We're dragging these guys into it as well here and there. I mean, is it kind of our fault if we want to be dragged? We're all puzzle people. I mean, we adore puzzles. Brian went to the MIT Mystery Hunt. I, well, haven't done many puzzle hunts, but we do escape rooms. There's obviously a number of ways that the Dutch game can work, and we've done an impromptu grouping of getting them into various lines of descent, if you will. For the most part, we're just going to kind of go through these in chronological order and talk about the different branches of the tree. There are some games that are sort of deduction-y that we're not really going to talk about in the main part of the episode, just because the deduction isn't the real focus of the game. Uh, It's something that you do to make your attempts to get the actual win condition easier. But by and large, the ones we're talking about in the meat of the game is, if you figure out what the puzzle thing is, you win. And with our research, we went back, and while there may be some earlier deduction games, we don't really know of any. The first one we kind of come across is also one that virtually everyone, even people who don't play board games, have played, which is 20 Questions. Or 20Q for the electronic version, or whatever. So this started in the 19th century. We don't have an exact start time or inventor or everything else, because it was probably just something that evolved out of people having conversations and trying desperately to avoid boredom. I think you mean trying desperately to connect to one another. Sure. They didn't have television or radio. So they actually, you know, got together and played games. It was was technically a a parlor game, which I assume just means lots of drinking and talking to people you don't particularly like. How is that different from board games today? (laughs) Is 20 Questions a board game? It's certainly sort of the archetype of one of the types of deduction game we're going to come across here, which is one person has the answer and the other player or players are trying to figure it out. Obviously, there's not a lot of rules to it. You ask yes or no questions. You have 20 of them. And if you can figure out the thing that the person is thinking of by the end of those 20 questions, you win. Otherwise, they win. It's one of those games that I think if played the way it was originally designed, is great to do with family and kids because a kid will pick something like 
that table. Mm-hmm. If you play it with a bunch of college students, you'll get some person who chooses something like the fundamental dichotomy between order and chaos in the universe, which is harder to guess. But it's not bigger than a bread box. Like, you could have a whole discussion on whether a concept is bigger than a bread box that, or not. That's true. I think officially it has to be a physical object of something. I believe that is correct. Nope. Do you have the official 20 questions rules, Frank? I've actually played versions of published 20 questions where ideas and concepts were present, and man, those are pain. Yeah, that's why I think there should be a rule that you don't <laughs> yeah. do that. That sounds awful. It's hard to understand, but back in the day, like uh, in the 1940s, this was a huge phenomenon in America. There was a radio show in 1946 called 20 Questions. What a surprise. (laughs) That was hugely popular. It segued into a television show, and Joe's already referenced it. Is it bigger than a bread box is like in our cultural canon as, as just a thing people use as a reference. And it's funny because like the guy who did it, Steve Allen, I looked this up because I was like, I want to know where this came from. He did it. I mean, it wasn't something that he thought was a big deal. But like when he said it, you know, and he didn't even say it. Is it uh, is it bigger than a bread box? He it was a more circuitous route to getting there. But like the audience, because it was a live audience back in the day, they just they just died. They thought it was the funniest thing ever. And he was super confused. He's like, oh, OK, it's just a standard thing that people could reference. Apparently, this became so popular because of the television show that, like, this poor guy, for, like, the rest of his life, basically, kept getting mailed bizarre-sized bread boxes from fans <laughs> because they're like, hey, look at this bread box. It's look how big or small it is. bread box. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I put a link in here that maybe Brian can put up in the notes. Sure. One of the later episodes of that TV series, they were trolling the poor guy. The actual thing he was supposed to guess was a bread box, and he got it. <laughs> <laughs> but was Great. it bigger than a bread box? No. 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 It's basically based off the reaction of the audience because they started giggling to themselves he's like okay i'm gonna go out on a limb here <laughs> Nailed it. i like it i like it how bored were we in the 1950s where 20 questions was a hit tv show i'm hurt that doesn't have a designer personally the cultural zeitgeist of europe <laughs> well no it apparently came out in the u.s it seems fundamental american because it's something that anyone can do and if you're the person you can feel smart because you know something they don't know there was at one point, I think, like an, an online or script-based thing that would basically take 20 questions, yeah. play them with you, and like as people answered yes or no, it would sort of increase its database of possible things that it could know to guess about. And they took abstracts of that particular online system and the little 20Q electronic things oh, were all on abstracts that? from that database. So when I was a child, the first deduction game I actually encountered was Battleship. Me too. Uh, it was fairly popular in the 80s. I couldn't think of anything that came up earlier. In fact, I honestly think I played Battleship before 20 questions as a child. But going back to the history of it, it's actually kind of interesting. If you go back to like the 1890s, there was a game called Basilinda, where basically two players would sit up opposite each other. There'd be a partition in between them, and they would arrange little soldiers and little cannons opposing each other. And then once they finished laying out all their little figures, they'd remove the partition. And then whatever the cannon was pointing at, those soldiers died. Wherever there was more soldiers pointing at less soldiers on the opposite side, all those guys would die. I had a version of this game called Battleboard that was my first introduction. In Battleboard, you set up the men and everything. And then you had a giant air bump <gasps> thing. And basically it would cause whoever was on the other side on exactly the other space to just fly up about two feet in the air. Oh my gosh, please tell me you have this game. Probably do still. Oh my God, I want to see this. This sounds okay. great. Because like when I was reading about it, like, this is actually kind of clever. I really like the idea here. It's kind of cool. The idea was you had a certain number of men. I think it was 18 in your pool of men. You keep replenishing it because you only had like three or four on the board at the same time. But eventually you get down to either your captain or your king, depending on which version of the game you're playing. And if he dies, you lose the game. So that's the 
I can't talk today. Origin. Joe. Origin. Sure. That's kind of like precursor. Precursor. Progenitor. Pro- ooh, progenitor. Mm, I like progenitor. that. That's progenitor of Battleship. That game does sound fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, it it doesn't really sound deduction-y, but it sounds fun. Yeah, you're not like firing blind and hoping, but you are positioning, and maybe based off what their previous moves were, you might have an idea of where they have stuff. It's like a really complicated rock, paper, scissors functionally, which is, yeah. which is fascinating. But I like Frank's version where you blow stuff up and it goes flying. That's that's amazing. <laughs> Always fun. It's a requirement for uh, any game. So new that. Kickstarter idea. Just write that one down, put it in the list with everything else. But anyway, in 1931, a game called Salvo came out. It's basically a pencil and paper version of what you're familiar with with Battleship. Essentially, you've got two opposing players. They've got uh, ships that they will uh, assign their locations. And just like what you would consider with traditional Battleship, you're going to declare a grid location and you're going to say if it's a hit or not. What's interesting about Salvo is that much to its name, you're not just firing one shot. The number of shots you fire is based on how many ships you still have. So like if you have six ships left, you fire six spots. And then you say, I'm going to go, I'm firing at this spot, this spot, this spot, this spot, you know, all six of them. And the other player says, two hits, three misses, you know. And it's like, that's fascinating. Nice. I was like, that's really cool. That's kind of funny because when we were kids, we would play Battleship and like we were precocious. So we were like, this game sucks. I bet we could make a better game. And we made something not unlike that where we had to declare which ship was firing and it would be like more powerful if it was a bigger ship or something like that. And it kind of reminds me of that. Part of what was interesting going through this, and I found this a number of times with older games that I played as a child, there was an advanced rule set apparently that followed this same idea Hmm. where like as you start losing ships, you get to fire less. So that's kind of the precursor or progenitor of Battleship directly. And then Milton Bradley kind of popularized it in 1967 with the plastic ships, the plastic pegs, the grid section that everybody is familiar with. A guy named Clifford Von Wickler is the guy who created that version of it. And that's kind of what we've all grown up with. Over the years, Battleship, of course, has evolved. Um, the electronic Battleship came out in 1977, where you didn't have to let the other person tell Talking you. Talking electronic Battleship. Well, that was 1989, <laughs> I want to say, which was amazing. Hit. D7. <laughs> you sang my battleship. Yes, yes. that commercial. Immortal line. <laughs> so I found conflicting information. So they said that that line was popularized in a 1985 commercial. It is awesome because the narrator of that commercial is the same narrator from G.I. Joe. I was like, yes, I knew I recognized that guy. <laughs> But I also found one from 1967 where the kids say, you sunk my battleship. But that wasn't nearly as popular. He apparently didn't deliver it as well. (laughs) You didn't have a verve, really. (laughs) As a kid, I loved playing this game. I would also cheat where I put my ship (laughs) overlapping the the grid designation. Because, you know, I was a bastard. And um, But yeah, basically you go back and forth in the traditional version of it, declaring a letter and grid location. The other player tells you if you've hit one of their ships. Each ship has a certain number of hits before it's sunk. Whoever has their entire fleet sunk first loses the game. And you are legally required to say you sunk my battleship whenever that occurs. And it's worth noting that in 2012, the awful movie Battleship was released, starring Rihanna. I think uh, the year after that, I was visiting my brother in Peru when he was in Peace Corps. And every single bus I got onto was showing Battleship in Spanish. And I never saw the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine they could get it cheap. Uh, yeah, probably. It was, was great. In that movie, right, the grids come down to put oh. the ships into grid. It's Yeah, like there's movie. a shield that holds them in that uh, location. That movie's real dumb. Yeah, yeah exactly. Dumb. And, so and weird. the projectiles are basically giant battleship bags. Yes. <laughs> uh, real dumb. It's a real dumb movie. 
Yeah, the idea of making movies out of board games is a dumb one, and uh, yet it keeps happening. Uh, uh, no, with one exception. With one notable exception. One amazing exception. Yes, we'll Which talk about that very soon. Next. Interesting is our next game. In 1949, Waddingtons and Parker Brothers created a extremely famous game that has had a variety of cultural impact, and that game was Clue. For our non-American listeners, you would probably know this game better as Cluedo, because that's the name it has everywhere that isn't here. Or Cluedo? I never worked I, that no, out. No, I think it's Cluedo, because okay. it's, it's Latin Ludo word. is the Latin term for I play. Oh, that actually makes Ludology, sense. Ludology, okay. yeah. It's a game pun in Yeah, there. I had to look that one up. I'm like, why would they call it Cluedo? It's such a bad name. <laughs> I'm sorry, Joe, you were saying. It was designed by Anthony E. Pratt, and this game is a classic. Besides being a roll-and-move game, which, ugh, roll-and-move games, it has a surprisingly interesting set of choices during the game. So you walk around to rooms and ask questions to other players about, hey, you know, I, I think this might have happened in this room, and they have to disprove you in some way, and you're desperately trying to figure out, oh, can no one disprove me this specific piece of information, therefore I've learned that... You know, I have these three weapons and no one can disprove this fourth weapon. So that's the murder weapon I now know. Very kind of classic deduction pieces. You can travel through secret passages. There's a master version, which added a park area, like an arboretum and like a garage. There, like, are, there more were more locations. rooms, more weapons, more suspects. Yeah. This was really the first game that created an idea that you will see a lot in the future of deduction games, which is a list of X options. And one of those options is set aside at the beginning of the game as a card that nobody has, and that's the one you're trying to figure out. And that recurs again and again in deduction games up till today. You are deducing the missing component. Right, exactly. Yep. It's a very common mechanic. But also and this important, is started. you're handing out a solving sheet to every player to check off yep. things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole checking off things is exactly what deduction is. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Do you all want to know a secret about my history with Clue. I have never actually played a game of Clue by the rules. Because again, <laughs> as kids, we had all these classic games and we we're like, we don't have time or energy or the wherewithal to read some rules. Let's just make some stuff up. It'll be great. It's a perfectly good game. I mean, obviously we've evolved a lot over the years, but other than the roll and move component, which eh, the game itself, the deduction part is absolutely solid and works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is still being produced today in almost as many licensed variations as Monopoly. This was a game that, when I was growing up, every house had a copy of Clue. Yeah. yeah, in fact, I think they took out the room movement in current editions of Clue. Oh, you just go from room to room? Yep. That, is that was a good change. Fundamentally yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. That fixes what is perhaps the biggest problem with Clue and the roll and move component. Because mm -hmm. like I said, Clue is a perfectly good deduction game. It's just got that annoying roll to move bit between the deduction Yeah, parts. and they finally decided that, hey, this isn't actually important to the game. Let's right. move on. Yeah. I think it might have been Rob Davio who took that out with the Clue card game, which was a very nice game. It was about the time he was the Hasbro, so okay. that feels like something he'd do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I love games by Rob Davio. Mostly. Mostly. There's some fun differences between the American and the British version. For some reason, the UK version, it was Dr. Black that was the uh, murder victim. In the US, it was Mr. Body, which I personally think is a little more clever. They also had in the original version that was never actually released some additional uh, weapons that they didn't include in the actual game. A bomb, a syringe, a shillelagh, a fireplace poker, an axe, and poison. <laughs> I think axe and poison were in the master yeah, version. They did get some of those were in the master yeah. detective. I like that you can be the killer and not know it because the yes. killer is determined randomly and your player is not related to the selection of who the killer is. So you're like, oh, I did it. 
<laughs> and actually, there are some games that we'll talk about later that sort of play with that idea a little bit. And it does have the best movie adaptation of Very any true. board game ever made. Well, first of all, if you put Tim Curry as the butler, Tim Curry is literally that. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's like mm-hmm. they did something which is, I think, still fascinating to this day, which is when they released the movie, they released different endings at different locations. So people would go see the movie and say, can you believe it was this? And the person would have seen... <laughs> A totally different ending. So if you watch the movie today, you get it on VHS or whatever, right? You're, you get it on Amazon. VHS. <laughs> you get it on Amazon. My, can't, my parents had a copy of it on VHS. You get it on Amazon or something. It will actually show you all the endings at the end. It'll be like, maybe this happened or maybe this happened. And then there's kind of like a, a canonical ending that they did eventually release in theaters after a couple of months of having this disparate set of endings out there, which was fascinating. I also looked up a little bit of interesting trivia on this. Apparently, Tim Curry wasn't the first choice of the butler, which blew my mind. Uh, they had considered Rowan Atkinson as a, as a oh, potential Mr. No, Bean. No, 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 which no. I don't think it would have been the right choice. Tim Curry was perfect oh, no. in that movie. Like oh, yeah. He made that movie the I mean, movie I, that it was. I love me some Rowan Atkinson, but I agree that that would not have been the right choice. And totally. they also filmed a fourth ending where uh, the butler did it. And they decided it just didn't work. Like, it was just not an ending they liked. They filmed it, and they literally removed it. The butler can't do it in the rules of the game. He's not one of the suspects. <laughs> nope. You got to stay true to the rules, man. But again, it's funny because I think that this movie is the reason that other board game movies exist. Because, like, I can already hear the pitches for any movie based on a board game. It just includes the line, it could be the next clue. Supposedly, there's a Monopoly movie in the works. Which Why? I don't know how that would work, but functionally, The Wolf of Wall Street is the Monopoly movie, <laughs> <laughs> or Greed, or there you, you know, go. pick one. All right, guys. I need a dog, a thimble, a wheelbarrow, and a car. Don't ask why. <laughs> Those have been replaced now. I think the iron is gone. What? And the uh, thimble is gone. Lame. Yeah. Is yeah, the there was, there was still a, there? Uh, Better still I would be think there. so. There was like a big internet poll. I don't even remember what the new ones are. Like a cell phone, probably. Yeah, I can't probably. wait for them to come up with a shared cinematic universe between Monopoly and Catan. <laughs> I think there is a cat now as well in Monopoly. That's fair. One of the great designers, especially in this genre, is uh, Robert Abbott. Remember that name. We'll be talking about him later. You'll hear yeah. a lot. Created Eleusis, which was actually published in the 90s or 2000s as Genius Rules, but originally came from 1956 from the Mathematical Games column in Scientific American, and also turned up in Sid Saxon's legendary Gamut of Games book, which if you don't have, just find a copy. In this game, one player is going to sit out and create a puzzle. Basically, they're creating a rule, a rule that defines a sequence of cards, and the other players commit cards to see that they're the next card in the sequence by just adding it to the end of the row. At that point, the clue giver says, yeah, no, and players get points for submitting correct cards as well as for guessing the actual rule used to define the thing. That's pretty much it. That's kind of a theme where one person creates a puzzle that you'll see later on in a couple other games. Yeah, it kind of ties back to the 20 questions thing. And like 20 questions, this is still pretty early and is almost vague enough that it's not really a game, but it is. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of rules to the game itself. The rule that you as the clue giver gets can be as arbitrary and complex as you like. And Genius Rules added, I think, some optional rule cards, as well as the scoring system. When I was reading the description of this one, it reminded me of that game with the alien and the kid that you showed us. Exactly. Visitor in Blackwood Grove. Yeah, that's the one. Has descended from that, as well as Zendo. Zendo is probably the most famous of the games that came under this. This was published by Looney Labs. 
originally is just kind of one of those download here are the rules for this game you can play with their almost ubiquitous ice house pyramids and gradually they publish the game again your rule creator creates a rule or uses one of the cards in the box and people stack pyramids in weird ways and the rule giver says yes or no with little ghost stones black or white to say if it matches the rule or not but it's the same idea. I mean, literally it is Eleusis adapted to Ice House. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because a lot of these are, I mean, the deduction game style is somewhere on this weird border between game and puzzle where a lot of these, like, they're not really board games. They're still games, but also they're puzzles. In a lot of ways, the reason this showed up in Scientific American is it's a simulation of scientific method. Mm-hmm. You have a test, hypothesis, you, you test, test it. it, and then you adapt the hypothesis. Yeah. Also, go Scientific American for their games column. Oh, oh God. Yeah. There was some brilliant stuff back there. Oh, yeah. Martin, Martin Gardner, Gardner. <laughs> did some amazing math logic puzzle stuff in there. I think Sprouts, which is one of my favorite pen and paper games, showed up there. Yeah, I tried to find the original article that that one had been posted in. All I found was the updated one he did in 1977. But yeah, if if you know anybody who has a big stack of old Scientific Americans up in their attic, they are they are well worth perusing. Another Robert Abbott invention uh, is a little number called "What's That on My Head," which is I think a great name for a game. And basically, you have a headband on, and there are three number cards placed into it that your opponents can see, but you can't. And basically, you draw a card and you get questions about the numbers that you see. You know, do you see more odd numbers or even numbers? Do you see more nines than you see twos? That kind of thing. And so the other players have to say, well, he can see those two people, but not his own. And he can see what's on my head. So if he says he sees three nines, but I only see two on those other two players, I must have a nine and deduce what's on your head. I love the name of that game way better than their modern-day interpretation of this game, which is called Headbands. And spelled very stupidly. Boring. It's H-E-D-B-A-N-Z. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, good lord. It's also weird that the first release of this, uh, first of all, the box art from the 60s is amazing. It's like totally like a 60s chick. It is very 60s. (laughs) Dressed up nicely, wearing this comical (laughs) crown. And she's like looking upwards like she can see through her own skull. What is that on my head? But uh, it was originally not numbers, it was letters, which sounds much harder. Hmm, you're right. Yeah. The reason I have an appreciation for this game is that it was the precursor to probably my favorite deduction game, Code 777, the sort of reinterpretation and streamlining of this game. But Brian, who made that game? (laughs) Amazingly enough, it was a fellow by the name of Robert Abbott. Who? Yeah. Along with Alex Randolph. And yeah, sure. It was also a smart person and a good game designer. Yeah. Italian game designer. It was released in 1985 by Jumbo. There was also a beautiful re-release from Stronghold Games in um, 2010. Stronghold likes to re-release these types of games. They did the same thing with Confusion. The really beautiful edition. That was, I think, the first time I was aware of Stronghold games because I had been a fan of Code 77. I had a beat-up old cardboard copy, and then I saw this nice version. I'm like, okay, I'm paying attention to these guys because they're taking cool games and making good versions of them. When Stronghold re-released it, didn't they add a fifth-player option to it? They did. I'm not a fan of it as a five-player game because the... To backtrack a minute, this is similar to what's that on my head. You have numbers, three numbers in front of you that you can't see, but your opponents can. One through seven. They're different colors. There is a whole little list. You've got one, one, two, twos, three, threes, all in different combinations of colors. And you're trying to figure out what numbers you have in front of you. The colors don't matter in that perspective, but they do matter for the clues. And basically, the problem with the five-player version is that 
when you are down to a certain number of tiles, as people guess, and their new tiles are replaced, you need to flush the game. And with a five-player version, at a certain point, there's enough data out there that you can almost immediately guess if you time things right, which I think isn't great. Detracts from the deduction of the game. You can also do a three-player version with, like, a dummy rack, but I don't see the point of that. This really wants to be a four-player game. Although I will say that I think that now that I've heard about what's said on my head, Code 777 just seems that much worse because they're not affixed to my forehead. <laughs> I'm just saying. Now, having the color and the pyramid distribution of numbers suddenly makes it into a real game. What's that on my head? It's a little easy. Code 777 is tricky. So clearly what we need to do is kickstart an add-on that will take the stronghold Code 777 tiles and develop a headband for them so that we can have the best of both worlds. So we're going to back up a little bit to one of the first deduction games I ever actually played. My parents had a copy of this game when I was a kid called Mastermind. And this was released in 1971 by Invicta Plastics and designed by Mordecai Mirowitz. And this is a game in which two players go head to head. One person is going to set out four pegs from left to right and hide them behind a partition. Meanwhile, the other player is going to arrange his pegs so that he can match up the color and position of what the opposing player has put there for him. You have the one peg in the correct position, or you've got three colors, but they're not in the correct position, is kind of the information that's given back to the code solver. And the person who's trying to figure out the combination has like 20 guesses or so before game over. So it is the classic logic puzzle that this is basically gamifying of there are four colored pegs in four possible positions. Can I figure out? Yeah. And that's something that, again, has been such a a cultural touchstone for a certain generation. You'll see variations of that in a lot of, you know, computer games and reference it. All uh, those Mansions hidden object of Madness games. has, yeah, has totally. a puzzle that, that is based on that. There were also some, you know, later variations. They did one called Grand Mastermind, where you had not only the color, but also the shape of the peg Ooh. you had to figure out. There was Ultimate Mastermind, which was just more pegs. It's fundamentally a game of strict logic. It does run into the same problem that a lot of these deduction games have, and we haven't really talked about yet which is that if an answer is made incorrectly, mm-hmm. everything falls apart. That's true. That ha- happened in Clue. It happens in What's Out of My Head Code 777. Virtually any of these, if someone inadvertently or, in fact, deliberately gets an answer wrong, everything is thrown out of whack and then you're lost. Yeah, Invicta Plastics did a whole bunch of other deduction games after the success of Mastermind. They're pretty small and no one really knows about them because Mastermind just eclipsed them all. There's one called, I think, Treasure Island that I like quite a bit. Not to be confused with the new Treasure Island. Which is another deduction. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We'll talk about that. Yeah. Just real quick, Mastermind was based off of a previous pencil and paper game called Bulls and Cows. Essentially, when giving an answer, the person who had set up the code originally, the bulls would indicate that they had matching positions. There wasn't a uh, color designator for this one. It was a more simplistic game. And the only reason I wanted to bring that up is because back in the 70s, they created a, uh, a computer program to play that game, and they named it Moo, which I found very amusing. <laughs> <laughs> one of the games we have that's not by Robert Abbott is by a friend of his named Sid Saxon. You've probably heard of if you've played board games or listened to this podcast. Easily my favorite designer. Uh, Sleuth from 1971, published by 3M, is probably the first truly iconic, has all of our elements, t- 
totally nailed down. It's got a bunch of cards, a solving grid. You have question cards, and the game's hard as hell. Uh, in Sleuth, particularly, you've got gem cards, which they have a color, a gem type, and a number of gems. So you've got three dimensions going here that you're worrying about for each card. And you've got to figure out what the missing card is. And you're given a list of question cards that indicate, okay, you have to ask about color this time. And my solving sheets for Sleuth are always just an unholy mess. <laughs> yeah. Because it's hard to write on paper in three dimensions. Yeah, totally. Huh. There's not a lot to it. Structurally, it's very simple. But the actual play of the game is challenging and fun. And if someone asked me to play Clue, I would probably suggest Sleuth instead because I think overall it's a better game. Oh, totally. The 70s were a big time for doing deduction games. Back when we wanted our children to think. Mm-mm, bad idea. And so we're just, we're just hitting the high points, things that people had heard of. Eric Solomon, Waddington's and Parker brother, 1977, published Black Box, which got TV commercials and everything, and I got a copy when I was a kid because I was totally into these kind of things. So Black Box is a weird, weird deduction game that doesn't work like anything else you've ever seen. What you've got is an 8 by grid containing five potential little marbles, but you don't know where they are. And you fire rays into this black box to see what happens and figure out where they are. And you get responses like a hit, meaning the ray just hit one of the things directly and absorb it. Meaning you know that that row or column has a marble. Yay. Somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> but if you're one, if you miss and it goes straight through, then yay. You see the ray coming out the other side. Find out where it comes out. If you go along a row right next to a marble, it'll then deflect 90 degrees away from that marble. It can get multiple deflections, which means that, you know, what looks like a miss that goes straight through could really have just hit three or four marbles. Yeah, it like deflects 90 degrees, right? Yeah, so always like deflects 90 degrees. You have degrees. this torturous path of this beam going through. And so it's basically looking at the rays, deducing where, where the marbles are. Once you get it, in how many moves... Uh, and I think you lose moves if you are incorrect. You then swap sides and like mastermind and do it again. Now, sadly, you're not actually shooting beams into the box. You're just saying, I'm putting one in row Thank eight. Thank you. Clearly, there needs to be a laser version of this. Yes. Yeah. I don't know why this hasn't been built yet. I do have a hex version that uses hexagons instead of a square oh. grid. Oh, good. <laughs> Let's that make it harder. Better. Oh, it's much harder. I know. <laughs> it's funny that you say that, though, because... Um, I think uh, Cosmos has released some laser puzzle games that have mm -hmm. pegs that you put in with mirrors attached to them and then a peg that will produce a laser. It's just one it's step It's screaming further. to be a black box. Like, it's version. so close. Yeah, and you've got cat and games like that that use a laser built into them. You want to talk about using, you know, games as a metaphor for the scientific method. This <laughs> is that in a nutshell. So apparently the design of this game was inspired by CAT scan devices. Huh. The designer had read about them and this what kind of spurred this whole design process. I was like, oh, that, that's basically how they work. That's pretty great. Yeah, and Eric Solomon's another puzzle kind of game designer. His stuff falls into a lot of that kind of puzzle game. So look for some of his stuff. And then he's got Conspiracy, which is just screwing with people. This is another one that apparently was originally themed to being atoms mm -hmm. that you were trying to detect the location mm -hmm. of. So it was very science-themed at the beginning. Never really caught on as much. The Hex one is hard and recommended if you actually want a game. I think that was published by, like, Frenjos. So more games by Puzzle People. And this one is my favorite deduction game. Spoilers. It's Orient Express, released by Just Games from 1985. Designers are R. Wayne Schmidtberger and Jeff Smets. 
Wayne Schmidtberger is another one of those New York puzzle people. He was puzzle editor for Games Magazine forever and ever and ever. And his skill at making puzzles shows through in this game. It's one of the most heavily themed of the classic deduction games. You get a solving grid. You have to figure out basically who did it, when, and I think in which room on the train. But then the game includes all sorts of other things. The suspects move around the train periodically. You can search a room and get a different kind of clue, different from talking to someone. You can step off the train at certain points and send a telegram to get background information on a character. There's even a timing mechanism, which I don't think we've seen in other uh, Slytherin games. The train will come to the end at some point. Yeah, the train gets to the end. You have to stop and guess. Also, the rather atypical thing that you can block clues. So if you really think a clue is crucial, you can put a number on it and the person has to roll a die and equal or exceed that number or they miss their turn. It's going to be so frustrating. (laughs) Some of the clues are worthless. There's duplicates in terms of the clue information in there. So you don't need all the clues. In fact, there's so many clues you can't get them all. And the other thing that's interesting about it is unlike most of the games we've talked about where you've got it's not this, this, or this, therefore it must be this, and you can know what the answer is. Nor Express, you will never really know what the answer is. You'll be able to come up with a pretty good guess, making some logical assumptions, but you can never know with 100% certainty that your guess is correct. You can occasionally, but it's a little hard. But then the most important thing about Orient Express is that it screws with you. (laughs) First of all, there can be more than one suspect. And in one of the expansions, yes, there is a case where all of them did it. I do do love (laughs) that. Because it would have to be. I actually really like the thought of in a deduction game, when somebody asks you for information or when you are required to give out some information, you being able to assess that information and saying, Man, if I don't want to give that out because that is going to give them way too much power or put them way closer to the goal than I will be. Like, I don't know that we see that again very often, do we? Well, in this case, it was really one of the early games with a book. I mean, there's a puzzle book for that in each of the expansions. And everything's, depending on where you ask, you're led to a paragraph. Right. Paragraph games again. <laughs> but also, some instead of just saying that, oh, the butler, the thief, mm-hmm. the socialite did not do it, it'll say things like they were in this car at this time which actually is a part of it since you're worried about the time that excludes them from being available for the murder but it may also say things like you know they ate pheasant for lunch and then you've got a whole new category of things you didn't know existed that you've got to track and you don't have a grid for it and so you never know what path the investigation is going to take and it feels more like an entire category of crime game If you notice, there's some games we left out if someone wants to pick up the rope after that. (laughs) So I really like a game where you could be reading a paragraph and you'd be like, someone mentions what that guy had for dinner. Like, oh, okay, that's fine. And then you read a second paragraph. Someone, when someone else had for dinner, is like, oh, no, that last one was important. Now I have to keep track of Like, I love that. I love that idea because, like, you're reading the paragraph and, like, they're they're a little story driven, right? So it's like, it's like kind of a description of stuff people know. And you're like, oh. You get a couple pieces of information you think innocuous, and then later you learn, oh, that one piece wasn't innocuous. It's actually super important. Oh, oh no. What did I, what was that last one that I didn't write down and wasn't paying any attention to? Yeah. I like the idea that you discover the pieces of the puzzle that are important in a specific mission as you go through it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we're seeing a lot more of that in recent games, actually, talking about how it's not you need to figure out X, Y, and Z, and here are your list of options. It's like, here's some information. Just figure out what happened. 
mm-hmm. any means necessary. And there's a couple more recent ones there that we'll mention a little bit later. Yeah. As you were talking about Orient Express, Frank, there were a lot of elements in that that were reworked in a one that Days of Wonder did a while back called Mystery Express. It's a much streamlined and, and crunched down version, but the whole thing with trying to figure out you have to take track of the time and you can get off and make telegram predictions earlier in the game. It seems like it's sort of a very cut down Version. And doesn't really have the deduction elements are stripped uh, out. Well, a I mean, lot. It, no, it's it much does. more of a traditional, you know, figure out the murderer, the weapon, the yeah. time, and the location. Mystery Express was very much closer to Clue in my uh, yeah, opinion. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, thematically, a lot of the same elements that were in Orient Express. I mean, it's a murder that takes place on a train. I guess you'll you'll see a lot of that by its nature. Also, Brian, Mystery Express was one of the first games I played with you. You're not wrong. Holds a special place in my heart. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> not a great game. Again, a perfectly crime game but we can do better we were young we were foolish we didn't know frank yet we didn't know frank <laughs> actually yet. i knew frank but uh yeah true and frank's the person who introduced me to the next game on our list which is little known long out of print it's hard to get a hold of uh it was never released in english as far as i know correct it was a game called black vienna it was released in 1987 by cosmos designed by gilbert obermeyer And this is one that, again, is sort of clue-like in that there's a hidden thing that you need to identify. In this case, there are 27 characters. Each is represented by a letter of the alphabet. Because it's German, you have both O and U, O with an umlaut over it. And basically, three of them are members of the terrorist organization known as Black Vienna. And you need to try and figure out which three those are. They're the cards that nobody else has. In each turn, you basically ask a question. There are, are sets of cards that have three letters, and you would say, all right, well, I have this this card here for AKR. And I put it in front of Frank, and Frank says either he doesn't have any of those cards, or he has one, or he has two, or he has three. And with that, you're trying to figure out what cards everyone has in their hands. What I really like about Black Vienna is that that information is public. So if you hand Frank a, K, and R, and he replies with zero, one, two, or three confirmed suspects. Everybody at the table gets that information. Yeah, I think if you didn't do that, it would be almost impossible yeah. or, or super. It would just be interminable. Yeah, it'd be interminable. There's actually a really nice online version of it available now. We'll put a link in the show notes where basically you just pick a card and you pick a person and it tells you they answer because it knows what the correct answer is. So it, it's impossible for anybody to screw it up. It's email based, so you can play it over time. It does love sending themed emails. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Agent Brian, we have a dispatch record. Regarding case 87. We started up a game when we were planning for this episode. We're still in the middle of it because Mike doesn't like reading his email. So, yeah, I don't work at a job where I can just check email whenever I want. Yeah, oddly enough, do you know how much I paid for that copy of Black Vienna? Because I was one of the first people. I ordered it in a Uh, box of German games. Ooh, ooh, I got this. One dollar, (laughs) Bob. Off by one (laughs) dollar. It was free? I was ordering a box of games and literally it was off a used game list. Mm-hmm. And it was like Black Vienna, you know, three or four Deutschmark, which was basically two bucks. So it's like, oh, I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably hell? interesting. And yeah. It is a good game. There are some files on the Board Game Geek from a guy who basically took a bunch of sort of film noir photography oh, that's and cool. has made it into a deck. It's one of those things that's sort of questionable on the intellectual property standpoint, but, you know... You will never be able to buy a legitimate copy. Right, exactly. So, So, yeah. I I feel like it's worth going out and looking at because I've printed one up and it's very nice. (laughs) Yeah. So then, down from the mountain, came Robert Abbott with another game. 
He's just working at a forge. He's <laughs> working at a forge. <laughs> working in the game mines. Gunk. <laughs> Comes down the mountain to occasionally deliver games. So the next game we're going to talk about is called Confusion, Espionage and Deception in the Cold War. It was published by Franjos Spelverlang? I've never heard of that company. Franjos Spelverlag. What else have they done? Nothing you would have heard of, Fair but enough. I have it all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, love That's their, fair. I love their game. It was released in 1992, as I mentioned, designed by Robert Abbott. The game is fascinating. The game is insane. Yeah. I should also point out that I have three different copies of this game. <laughs> I, knew you, I knew you had the original edition and the I've new one. I've got one, one of Robert Abbott's prototypes he sent me Ooh, when he was yeah, working on yeah, the yeah, Robert Abbott's prototype. <laughs> so the game is fascinating because it's not dissimilar from, I think, Stratego has a similar movement. Stratego is a sort of thing where many of you have probably played it. You have a bunch of little army dudes, and they're ranked one through nine, and you can see what your guys are and your opponent can't. And basically, you can capture pieces that are lower ranked than you. And you're basically trying to maneuver around and capture the flag. So there's something slightly deduction-y, because you're sort of trying to figure out what your opponent's pieces are, but that's not really the gist of the game. And really, the deduction isn't the gist of confusion either, but... We thought it was interesting enough to I don't to know. Discuss. I mean, in some ways it kind of is. It has the grid, as Frank likes to say, right? In Confusion, unlike in Stratego, where you see all of your pieces and your opponent sees all of their pieces, in Confusion, your opponent sees all of your pieces and you see all of your opponent's pieces. So on your turn, you select a piece and make a move. And all the pieces move differently. Each piece has a different set of moves it is legally allowed so to make. So you pick a piece in front of you, you move it somehow on the board, you have in front of you the list of all possible moves. You move the piece, and then you look at your opponent, and they either say yes or no. If they say yes, then your piece has moved there. If they say no, your piece returns to from whence it came, and then your turn is over as you go quickly scribble down all the piece of information you just learned by not being able to make that move. Okay, it can't move one diagonally forward, so it cannot be pieces Q, J, X, or L. And also there's a piece that can do whatever your opponent wants it to do functionally, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, that was a new one. It's funny because that is the deduction component of this game, but the actual point of the game is a capture the flag mechanic. In between your two rows of men, there is a briefcase. You need to go out to the briefcase and then you take it to your opponent's side. And so the early game is like, man, if this piece can move three in the diagonal, then I can just get to the briefcase in one turn. Yeah. Let me give it a try. Yeah, it turns <laughs> out that if you knew how your pieces moved, it would be trivially easy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's not. But the weird thing is because you know how your opponent's pieces move, you also have to track the information they know about their pieces so that you can move a piece that would easily be captured, something that would look normally stupid. It's called a bluff. <laughs> I've now played this game a handful of times, and that is some next-level thinking there, is I'm still trying to wrap my brain around my pieces. Now I have to keep track of their pieces. Oh, yeah. And I think at least the Frangis version had two solving grids, one for you and this, one for... Yeah, the yeah, and, yeah. Okay. and their dry erase. The one I originally saw you have was just the cubes with engraved on one side. Was that the prototype, or was that uh, the... That was the original cubes was the Frangis version, okay. which was painted cubes, and you just put a letter on top to indicate which piece it was. Yep. This was a problem because the wood grain was a not uniform. Entirely, yeah, uniform. Once again, Stronghold did a beautiful job of remaking this. Yeah. You know, there are lettered or symbol identified, Symbols, I guess, yeah. cases that you sort of slide the individual pieces into. Black monolith of plastic. Yeah, it's really it's, slick. It's so pretty. I think it's possible I actually showed this to Stephen Bonacor, <laughs> the, the franchise version, because I've always been a huge fan of the game. Excellent. You're responsible for Possibly. this. Possibly. 
good. I can't remember the order of when he was doing that. I talked to him about it when he was looking at publishing it. It is not a game for the faint of heart. <laughs> no, the game is a ton of fun. It is a brain burner and no mistake. I think it is also probably up there on my favorite two-player games. Like, I think oh, this yeah. one's just like, you sit down, you both burn your brains out, and you have a ton of fun while you do it. It's great. The next game we had on our list is Mystery of the Abbey, or as it was originally called, Murder in the Abbey. Murder de la Abbey. It was in French only. Sounds French. Well, it was designed by Bruno Fadudi and Serge Leger, published by Multisim in 1995. And this is a game that was this close to being the name of the rose, the board game. And it has pretty much everything from that setting except the name. And I think that was a missed opportunity. The only thing I know about Mr. of the Abbey is that at some point you ring a bell. <laughs> That's when the mass happens, right? I have a friend who was just obsessed. And the only thing I remember him telling is like, and then you have to ring the little bell. And he was so excited about ringing the bell. <laughs> Got a strange friend, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, a monk has been murdered. And sort of clue style, you have a whole slew of monk cards. And one of them has been put aside. And that's the murderer. But unlike most of the games we've talked about in the clue tradition, Tradition. It's not like all the other cards are just distributed around among the other players. There are cards that are stored in certain rooms, so you have to go into that room and explore. You can go into the other players' quote-unquote bedrooms in the abbey and search them, so you get to draw a card from their hand and look at it. But if you get caught, bad things happen. Scandalous. Yep. Cards move around from player to player periodically during the time, so just because I've seen that Joe has this particular character doesn't mean that he still has it. So there's a lot of stuff going on. When you meet another player and ask them a question, how many Franciscan monks do you have? Because there's three orders of monks. There's hood up or hood down, bearded or clean shaven. And there's like three ranks, like novice, elder. So when you ask someone a question, they can either give you a truthful answer or they just take a vow of silence and they don't answer you. There are event cards that cause random things. There's a library that you can go into that has all the banned books that are like super powerful investigation cards, but there's negative effects with them. It's like you took Clue and just kept piling more stuff on top of it every time you had a good idea. There are a couple things in the game that I think are a little too much. Like some of the event cards are random things like, until the next mass, all players have to speak in Gregorian chant, <laughs> which is awesome. <laughs> awesome and yet ridiculous and also silly there are a lot of things going on figuring out the murderer is not necessarily going to win you the game it gets you a certain number of points and there's a variety of ways to get points despite the amount of stuff that's moving around which makes it a little bit trickier to do it feels like a lighter deduction game just because there's some silliness going on i still think it's a lot of fun yeah the level of deduction and pure hardcore solving grid action is kind of low anytime cards move around you're screwed for any of the traditional deductions just too hard to track but yeah i've always liked the game and it feels like an older Bruno Fiduti. His first couple games, along with this and Valley of the Mammoths, were wacky, event-driven, narrative, bizarre things. I happen to love both those games. So, And again, I love any deduction game where instead of answering your question, I'm just going to commit to a vow of silence. Like, it's great. What's the incentive for you not doing that every time? Normally, if I ask Joe a question, if he answers me, he can then ask me a question Got back. it. Correct. Okay. That or he sense. takes a vow of silence, in which case none of us gets anything. Gotcha. So yeah, if you're interested in something that's a little less hardcore, I don't know how easy it is to find anymore. Days of Wonder did a very nice edition. I don't think it's incredibly well-loved, so you can probably yeah, find it. 
On the other hand, if you do want something that's really hardcore. <laughs> yeah. And I haven't played this in so long. I don't know that any of us have. Deduce or Die is the name of the game, and it's not really a published game. The rules were put out in the game's journal at one point. Basically, you can do it with a couple decks of regular cards, although on the Geek there are some printable specific sets of cards. Designed by Larry Levy. First of all, it's a fascinating concept behind the game. You're a bunch of lawyers that are shipwrecked on a desert island, and one of you has killed someone. Don't they just litigate about it the entire time? <laughs> well, they, if there was an actual court, they would. You've got basically three suits of cards, one through nine of each suit. There are two cards that are called, I think, the evidence cards that are set aside, and they point to a third card. So it's like the value of the actual murderer card is equal to the sum of the two evidence cards, and if it's greater than nine, you subtract nine and wrap around. And if both the evidence cards are the same suit, then the murder card is the same suit. Otherwise, it's the suit that's not represented among those two. So if you have a heart and a club, then the other one is a spade or whatever the three suits are. So first, you have to figure out what the two evidence cards are. Once you do that, you know what the actual murderer card is. And then you have to figure out who is holding that card because that's the murderer. It might be you. And basically, if you can figure out who the actual murderer is and identify them, and you win the game. If it's you, the next card up in that same suit is the person you're trying to pin it on. <laughs> so you need to sort of, you know, <laughs> accuse them of being the murderer. And I'm not going to lie. Mm -hmm. I think my brain melted just through your explanation. <laughs> you were just talking about how much you like confusion. I don't know yeah. what the problem is here. <laughs> Still, fundamentally, you've got that kind of clue functionality. You know, other people have all the cards. Find out what's missing. But it is brain burny to be sure. Well, like it's a multi-level deduction because you're first deducing the evidence cards, which you're then deducing. Yes, and unless you have both card. of those right, there's no way you can get the other one. Right. And then you're playing a social game after that. It's <laughs> no during that. Yeah. Or sure, like yeah. Yeah, there is an online version of it. I haven't tried it myself because my brain is not ready for that kind of activity, but I feel mm -hmm. like we should do that at some point yeah, that'd be just because it would be painful. Yeah, but because it's always been pretty much a public domain game, you can just download it, get your own cards, whatever, off the geek or yeah. find the original article in the Games Journal. Good stuff. So if you want to see crossings and everything, Greg Alec Nevicus, who did the online Black Vienna, was the editor for the Games Journal. The publisher who guy who still maintains the games journal and keeps it online is me <laughs> just to show you what a tiny tiny world this is so let's, let's all take a step back these for dies really stressful really complicated let's just make beautiful fireworks together and the way i like to make the beautiful fireworks is of course hanabi which is one of i think one of my favorite games on this list designed by antony buzz Antoine Every Balza. time he does a game, you are introducing it. Really? Yeah. You, you, you like his games a lot, apparently. I do. I actually have in the outtakes a version of you uh, <laughs> doing it as Anton Baza. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So designers are Antoine Balza, Gerald Grillet, Albertine Ralenti. Released in 2010 by Cocktail Games. And in Hanabi, you have a hand of cards. And you can't see them. Well, I mean, you can see that you have them. You can see you that see you the have back. them. They do you exist. Cannot, you do not see the faces of the cards. The goal of the game is relatively simple. There are four suits. I think there's a variant that has five suits. Yeah, there's a rainbow. Your goal as a table, right, so it's a purely cooperative game, is to play one through five of each of the fireworks in order onto the table. Um, but obviously, since you can't see your cards, that is somewhat challenging. So on your turn, you can either play a card... And it will just go into whatever pile it goes into. And if you make a mistake, 
you can make up to three mistakes before the game ends. You can discard a card for an extra clue token, or you can spend a clue token and tell someone something about their hand. And the way that works is you can tell either here are all the numbers of a specific number in your hand, or here are all the cards that are a specific color in your hand. So you can be like, hey, this card is a five, or hey, these two cards are both fives. And then that person says, well, shit, let me put these to the side because there are more ones than there are fives. There's only one five of each suit. There's, I think, two fours, two threes. Two twos. Two twos and three ones. And then you just all play. You start with a handful of initial clues you can give out and you can discard cards in your hand to get more clues. But obviously, if you discard a five, then you can now never complete that specific firework. And there's a scoring mechanism. But really, whenever I play, it's really like whatever you can complete. Yeah, it's always fun watching the systems people come up with for games like this where they're like, okay, so they told me information. So I need to I need to order my cards this way. I'm going to slightly turn this card so I remember that this card is this. And I'm going to make this one completely parallel to the table. And like just ways of trying to help themselves. See, for recall. me, if I did that, like if people told me things and then I rearrange the cards in my hand, that would throw me all off. Oh, you have to keep them in the same order I, that you I, received I, them in? Yeah. I oh, like wow. I, I would have to keep them that way. Oh, uh, well, actually, it's really important. So much like Bridge, right? Like, we come up with a table, a list set of rules that exist. So one rule that is not uncommon at a table I have come and played this game at is, hey, if I'm at the point where there are no more clues and no one has told me about whatever card is the oldest in my hand is probably trash. So if no one has told me anything, I'm going to discard the oldest card in my hand. Because if this card was important, someone would have bothered to tell me about it. So I'm going to discard it, right? And that's the kind of thing where it's like, there are certain mechanisms your table will come up with. Yeah, we talked about this during our Cooperative Games episode a while back. Right. Interestingly, this was actually, when it was originally released, there were actually two games in the set using the same deck. There was another one called Ikebana, which is a competitive game of flower arranging using the same deck. But it has not had nearly the critical reception that Hanabi had. I think this is the first cooperative deductive game we've talked about, right? It's certainly the first one we've discussed. It is true for the list, yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing that you mentioned was the optional rule of playing with the rainbow cards, which are their own unique set, but when you are giving clues, they are included with whatever color that you are talking about. So if you're trying to point out yellow cards in somebody else's hand, if they have a rainbow card, you must also point to the rainbow card. That is also a yellow card. card. And so it adds like a, well, shoot, did they just point to two yellow cards, two rainbow cards, or one yellow card and one rainbow card? So it adds a whole nother level of thinking when playing with that optional rule. Why do people need to make deduction games harder? <laughs> that is a great question. Because I like Hanabi a lot. I think they're smarter games. than we are. <laughs> I like Hanabi also because it is extremely simple. Because you have to store all the information that you've been told about your hand in your brain, right? There's no like writing notes, taking notes or anything like that. The amount of information they give you necessitates that you don't overload people. And you'll still get a little overloaded, right? It's brain burnery in terms of like trying to keep all these pieces or like moving cards around your hand to remind you of what is important or whatnot. But it's just a clever little game. It's simple, but not easy. Yes, exactly. So in 2015, a game came out, which I don't think made a big splash, but I kind of like it because it does some cool stuff based on the clue theme called Perfect Alibi. It was published by uh, Lautapellet.fi, which is a Finnish game publisher. Designer was Christian Amundsen Ostby. It is kind of like a clue sort of thing where you're on a boat in this case and you have to figure out who committed the murder and what they used and what time it happened and that sort of thing. All of the passengers in the game have an alibi that says, well, I was somewhere else at that time or whatever it was. And you have to figure out who doesn't have a valid alibi. Initially, it's very sort of standard clue. You ask people questions. They show you cards. They give you information. 
There are also a number of crew on the boat that can help you asking your questions. Each person sort of has one that is on their side. So, for instance, if you have the captain on your side, whenever another person shows someone else a card, you get to see it as well. <laughs> So there are additional ways to get information or hide information from other players. There are ways that you can change what assistant you have and that sort of thing. There are two things they do in this game that are particularly interesting. They're both sort of variants, but they sort of spin things up. There's one called the rival, and basically that means at the start of the game, in addition to whatever assistant you have, you get a token that indicates one of the other assistants, and whoever has that assistant in front of them is your rival. And whenever they ask you a question... You must lie. You have to give them false information, which really is something you don't see in deduction games, because in a lot of games it <laughs> makes it completely slash impossible <laughs> to do. So it's sort of a brutal difficulty addition there. The other thing that I think is interesting is what I like to think of as the my notes are never wrong variant, which is really for the hardcore players. If you think someone has given you incorrect information, you can accuse them. And say, hey, you said this person was in the kitchen at 12 o'clock. I have evidence that they weren't. You say, this is the particular thing I think you lied to me about. Check, is that correct? And if they made a mistake when they gave you that original answer, that means they're an accomplice to the murderer and you win. What if they're the person who has to lie? The to rival. You? I don't think you can use both those variants okay. at the same yeah, time because that would be insane. I mean, sure. Again, it's not a tremendous game. It's not something I'd call on one of my all-time favorites, but those are two aspects that I think we don't see in other games, and I'm intrigued by them. <laughs> and it's worth noting, the box art is incredible. Yeah, dude with a harpoon through his chest, it certainly stands out. Well, out of all the oh, games yeah. that we've been talking about today that are about a murder of someone... This is the first one that actually shows the dead body on the front of it, covered in blood with a harpoon sticking out of its back. Well, you know, the Scandinavians, you know, <laughs> you, you have long, cold winters up there. It gets a little tricky. The way they did oh, it, it's fine. finished. So, yeah, that's definitely the most hardcore of your Scandinavians. So, regarding dark themes in games, <laughs> uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Salem from 2016, released by Passport Game Studios' Rock, Paper, Scissors Games, designed by Joshua Balvin. This is another one in the Black Vienna sleuth, very pure kind of deduction game. It does include two games. I have never played the advanced game. The people I know who play it have also never played the advanced game because it goes into the mystery, the Abbey kind of chaos. And the base game is so good. You've got a grid. And in this grid, you've got seven colors of people numbered one to seven. Each player has one of the colors and three of them are witches, four of them are villagers. In fact, the setup of this game is unusual in that you do this elaborate ritual that takes about five minutes of shuffling together the cards, dealing them out into different stacks, that guarantees that each color will have three witches and each number will have three witches. In this case, your solving grid has rows and columns, and you know three witches will be in each. And then all you have to do is say which of the people in the middle that aren't claimed by players are witches. That's it. Some of those are taken by players in smaller numbers, but it's hard because you can't ask questions about the cards in the middle. You have to deduce any information about those from the context of the other cards. So you have to work out what's in that, what else is in the row of column to determine out if that person's a villager or witch. And just to clarify, because there are a million games named something like this, this is just Salem, right? Just Salem. Okay. Sorry, Salem. No, just Salem. <laughs> the new Salem or... 
Oh my God! There's another Salem game, or yeah, yeah. Rise of Salem, Salem's yeah, Revenge, totally. Salem's Lot, yeah. <laughs> and it's fascinating the way it sets up the idea of having three known criminals in each column. It's got almost like a Sudoku kind of vibe. You totally. Know? You need to figure yeah. out what else is in the column, so you know what in the yeah, ones you, you don't know, know what's not in the column. The pops really fast. You've got three different kinds of questions, and you have to alternate between those three types before you get the setback and can ask hmm. three. So the information, the grid sheets. It's some bizarre, bizarre references. It's almost sleuth-like complexity in the information you have to track down. It's worth noting in uh, Salem that apparently they did their homework on this one. All the villagers are based off of real people that they researched. Nice. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's easy to get those lists. Yeah, but how many games go through much effort? You are know? all of their names goody something? <laughs> A surprising number, yeah. One that I wanted to mention briefly because it's not out in English yet, but will be shortly because it just has a successful Kickstarter, is a Spanish game called Incomodos Invitados, which means awkward guests, which is what the English name is going to be. Originally done in 2016 by Megacorp and Games by Ron Gonzalo Garcia. Again, it starts out like a variation of the standard clue thing. Someone has been killed. You have to figure out who, how, why, you know, the motive, the weapon, the person, and possibly there was an accomplice. Unlike most of those, it's not like you're just seeing cards that say this person has the knife, so it wasn't the knife. There's actually a map of the mansion where all this took place. For each scenario, there's like a key number and you build a deck of informational cards out of the things that match that number. And so basically, if you go and you talk to someone in the living room, they will say, well, I was in the living room from 8 o'clock until 10 o'clock and nobody else came through. And you can actually map out, you have a little dry erase screen and you can actually say okay so if no one went in the living room in those hours then anybody who is going from the library to the kitchen must have gone through there so they can't have gone that way you're actually physically having to keep track of <laughs> where people were and you know for weapons you'll have things like well the coroner's report says it wasn't a sharp weapon so that rules out the knife and the axe and the cavalry saber there's just a lot of levels of deduction i haven't played the game yet because as i say the english kickstarter has just recently finished but I'm looking forward to it because it looks simultaneously a little crazy and kind of cool. That does sound like a much better version of Clue. I'm 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 really anxious to get it on the table. It plays up to eight people, which is always nice. Oh yeah, totally. Wow, that won't be crazy at all. <laughs> <laughs> so on to games we actually have played. Yeah, there I'm you go. <laughs> have played. So in uh, 2016, Suspicion was released by Wonder Forge, designed by. Forest Prusan Creative. So in Suspicion, you get a character card and you get a couple of action cards and your goal is to score points and you score points by getting jewels. Some of the cards you'll play and they'll like give you a jewel. Some of the cards they'll play and you can pick up a jewel from the room your character is in. And so everyone else is trying to determine who everyone else is. Oh, so it's the sort of thing where everybody moves everybody's pieces? Yes, yes. Every, every, you roll some dice. You, so at the start of your turn, you roll two dice, and they're either a question mark or one of the, I think it's eight different characters or 12 different Ten. characters. Ten. Yeah. And you move each of those pieces one space in any direction that you want. And then you play a card, and it has two sides. It will have a top and a bottom. You do them both. You do them in either order. And one of them is like, pick up a gem from the room that you're in. One of them is just like, get a colored gem. One is like, ask a person if their character can see the character you have listed. It's like, hey, can you see yellow? Yep, it's, it's like, all orthogonally. You say, it's all orthogonal vision. And at the end of the game, you get points for the gems you've collected, and you want to make sets, and then you get a final guess for each person. You get points for each final guess you made on each person, if you're correct. And like the art is super 60s. Super it's awesome. 60s. It's super <laughs> gorgeous. I can't wait personally for the moose and squirrel expansion. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
yeah the box art is gorgeous the the art on the all the little pieces is really nice yeah. like it's really high quality like surprisingly high quality game the production value on it is wonderful like the art design is excellent as joe's mentioned there's spot gloss on the freaking board the cards are made of plastic i actually ran into this at barnes and noble earlier this week and uh it's 1999 i could <laughs> not believe that seems like a really good deal yeah it is i probably should have just picked it up but i was so shocked at that it was such a low price i was like wow i mean for as much cool stuff as in this game and the how well designed it is i would have expected a higher price mm-hmm. yeah that sounds like a lot of fun although yeah. i do have another game i'd bring up that i saw for sale at barnes and noble and was there last week in a grove from 2011, designed by uh, Yun Sasaki, uh, published by his own Oink Games in Japan. I love all the Oink Games, and I have them all. They're in tiny little... Yeah, these are the people that did Deep, Deep Sea, sea Adventure. Adventure is the one that's kind of... An Insider, which was the original for Werewords. Basically, in Inner Grove, you're presented each round with a tiny little crime scene. There's one of the little guys lying flat on the ground, and then three guys standing over him. And it's really designed for four players. Everyone then gets one of the seven tiles to look at, passes it, so they get to see two of the other tiles. And they're all numbered, so you can tell them apart. Correct. And then you go one round of asking questions about the suspects, where everyone gets to look at a suspect and then make a guess on which suspect actually did it. The scoring is actually really simple. It's pretty much the highest, unless there's a minus in the suspects, in which case it's the lowest. Mm-hmm. So you're really trying not to be on top because it's the person on top who's wrong who takes the hit. Uh, and you keep playing until someone runs out of guesses. So it's six or seven rounds of this. But it's really simple. There's a tiny amount of bluff. The production is gorgeous. And it's $20 in the tiniest box you will ever have. <laughs> but yeah, this one is fascinating. It's adorable. I like the little block-shaped guys. It's the most adorable murder you'll ever have. <laughs> totally. I think next we need to talk about some math. Because uh, Shipwreck Arcana which was uh, made in 2017 by Miramorph Games and designed by Kevin Bishop, is basically a 101 in math logic. Well, I mean, it's not so much math. You're not doing a lot of actual operations on the numbers, but it is a question of figuring out... Uh, I don't know. I'm uncomfortable calling it math, but I don't know of a better way to summarize it. Sure. So <laughs> in, in this game, there are four cards... Yeah. We've went into this one kind of in depth in the co-op games episode. The art is still gorgeous in it. Yeah, God, the art so is so gorgeous. It's a beautiful game. It deserves wider recognition than it has gotten. Uh, it just had another Kickstarter, I think, did and pretty I think well. It did really well. Yeah, they just added like five cards. That was it. But it also let people get the original mm-hmm. game who yep. hadn't. Yep. So yeah, if you like deduction games, especially as a purely cooperative deduction game, which, as we've said, there aren't many of, it's really good and, and I highly recommend it. Cryptid came out in 2018 from Osprey Games, designed by Hal Duncan and Ruth Beavers. Of all the games on the list, this is not only the newest, but my favorite. In this game, how to even explain this game? So each player gets a board that has rules on it. Then you randomly, as a group, pick one card that will tell you which of those rules on your board is true for this game. And how the board's set up. And with those two things combined, when you puzzle out all players' rules, a single spot on the board will be highlighted. That's what you're trying to discover. And you do that by, you place a pawn out into the board and then ask a player if that 
placement breaks their rule. And they will either say, it does not break my rule, in which case that is a part of the mystery solved. Or they're like, yep, nope, that breaks my rule. At which point you can stop thinking about that space on the board because that will never be the location. In addition to making a guess there, you can just say, I think this is the solution, at which case players will go round robin saying either yay or nay. I cannot even fathom setting up that game. Blows my mind. From a design standpoint, to come with a set of rules that for whatever given combination of space you're using is going to uniquely identify exactly one space is fascinating. To me. Yeah, and there's like 50 or 60 cards. And, and it and scales yeah. for the number of players using the same cards, rules, and board setup. It is in the desert. It's not in the desert. It's within one space of water, things within like Within two that. spaces of a structure. And the thing is, watching people place cubes, which is saying this is not a valid location, then trying to say, okay, well, what is their rule? What does that have in common? The advanced rules of the game include the negatives of the rules. (laughs) Nope, 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 nope. Jason's not going there. (laughs) No, I had enough trouble with the regular rules, thank you. (laughs) I did not. I still don't totally grok this game. I haven't gotten to play this one yet, but I'm really interested in it. It doesn't include a solving grid. But on BGG, people have created solving grids for it, which make it a little easier. Yeah, that would help us a little bit, because I was having trouble keeping all the possibilities in my brain. Yeah, and you can just go through and mark down, okay, it's not that, not that, not not, not that. It's interesting, because when I first heard about this game, it sounded a lot like a slightly older game called Tobago, but it's really kind of the opposite, because in Tobago you're likewise trying to identify a specific space that you're trying to go to, but it's not like there is a predetermined space. You're gradually building a set of rules to narrow it down to the point where there's only one space left. And in this, you're all starting with one and trying to figure it out. Yeah, the weird thing is it's cryptid structured a little more like Zendo because you're there's a rule, except unlike Zendo, you don't create the rule ever. Mm-hmm. And everyone has their own rule and you're looking at the combination of rules. It's really simple to teach, like Zendo. I think its popularity is based on the fact that you can explain the rules in about 30 seconds. And this is fairly similar. But yet it's a proper deduction game and a really good one. Yeah, no, I I really want to try that. Yeah, despite not cracking the rules myself, I still enjoyed it. I I could appreciate how clever it was and how how interesting it was. It's just I'm not winning that game anytime soon. I think think the grid would help a lot for me too. Probably, yeah. Like the grid, because then I could like visualize all the things that were going on. Yeah, there are a lot of possible rules people could have and trying to hold them all in my head at the same time while evaluating a board condition, I was not having much luck with. Yeah. 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 I think this goes back to what you were saying, Joe, about Hanabi, where like the more simple the mechanics of a deduction game are, I feel like I personally like them more because Cryptid, Shipwreck Arcana, and Hanabi are all mechanically very straightforward, very simplistic, but it's the logic behind the game that I find most fascinating. Same with like Black Vienna as a yeah. kind of a precursor to those kind of that kind of like minimalist deduction game kind of idea. One other one that we haven't actually played yet, but several of us have been looking into and have almost pulled the trigger on buying, is a number called Treasure Island, which was released in 2018 by Matago and a number of other publishers designed by Mark Pacquian. And it is a one versus many deduction game. One person is playing Long John Silver, and there is a space on the map where they have buried their treasure. 
but the other players have captured him, so they're asking him questions about where things are. The interesting and potentially troubling thing about this game is that there's not actually a grid. It's just kind of like a top-down picture of the island, mm-hmm. yeah. and Long John Silver has functionally picked a spot. And so the other players can ask questions like, all right, is it within three inches of this spot here? And basically they pick a spot and it comes with a little tool that you draw a circle on the board. (laughs) Is it inside that circle? Yes or no. Is it east of this spot here? And that sort of thing. And obviously because there's not a grid, you get the sort of things where whether it's inside that circle or not depends on how sharp your dry erase marker is. So you have to sort of allow for that. Basically the players are trying to figure it out. If they don't do it in a certain number of turns, Long John Silver escapes and now he's trying to get to where the treasure is huh. before anybody else does. Does Lonjon have his own smaller map, kind of like Fury of Dracula, where he's not like scrutinizing where his actual location is? I think so. He, he draws he's, it every, on Everybody machine, has yeah. their own little screen yeah. to operate on. That's all the, the tools that come with. But yeah, people actually have to move around on the island, gridless, and choose their location and then ask the various questions. I want to try it because it sounds like it'd be fascinating, but I think you really have to play it with the right group of people and you're, you need to be willing to stipulate how close to in is in because yeah. uh, it's uh, it's not a exact science there. There are a couple of games we wanted to talk about that for one reason or another didn't make it onto the main list. In many cases, because there's deduction there, but it's not the sole or only part of the game. Obviously, there are some of those that we've already talked about. Confusion is another one where deducing the solution isn't really the answer, but it was so cool we wanted to put it on the main list. And we had to give Robert Abbott's name in there as many times as possible. Yeah, Yeah, he wasn't well represented enough in this list. Another one that I kind of want to talk about, just because I don't know in what other episode we could possibly talk about this game, but I want to talk about it, is called Castle of Magic. Uh, it was a 1991 release by Riddlemaster Games designed by Rick Smith. Jason's notes on this game are awesome because it consists of two lines. One says, the board hurts my brain, which is an entirely valid observation. I'll put a picture of the show notes. And the other line is, Frank will explain it, which I think is an extraordinarily optimistic thing to say. <laughs> because I don't know if this game is really explainable. Oh, it's explainable. I think it's sort of like The Matrix. You have to live through it. I mean, it's simple. It's a LARP done as a board game. Yeah. <laughs> everyone gets the, everyone gets their character and you get a point list of goals that you've got. And the board has a lot of elements of a ritual that will do something, one of eight choices. It'll summon a monster, have him rampage, kill him or whatever. Depends upon the status of Bell, Book, and Candle, three bits. Plus, you've got these other things like who ends up with the crown, scepter, and orb. Those are things which give some people points, some other people points. You just basically move around the board, roll a die, and you get experience, which slowly increases your ability to either look at or manipulate the state of other things. And that's it. Sounds super simple. Yeah, sure. I mean, each player is a representative of one of the three countries. And in general, if you're a part of a country, you want your country to do well and the other ones to fail. Like Frank said, with the ritual, there's a bell which can be ringing or silent. There's a book that can be open or closed. There's a candle that can be lit or unlit. And you're trying to move those things to the right place to do your ritual. Maybe you want to control the monster. Maybe you want to banish the monster. Maybe you want the monster to kill somebody. Maybe you are the monster. Some of the characters get a little bit weird. But yeah, it's a bit... Actually... It's less deductiony than social deductiony, really, because you're sort of trying to figure out who is like from your country and thus maybe on your team. True. You do have to figure out what the real ritual does. 
because it's not known at the start of the game the outcome of the ritual. Yeah, you can perform. You know how how the ritual is performed. You just don't know what it's going to do. <laughs> yeah, and each combination of those three things will have a different result. So yeah, basically you're trying to figure out what you can do to maximize your points. It's one of those games that I love the concept of. I wish it was a better game. Too damn long. There is yeah. so much in this game. There is a lot. There's actually a, a book of sort of alternate scenarios and rules, which I think is generally better. Kind of streamlines things down, makes it a little easier, sort of does the scenarios a little bit differently. Oddly enough, they did a Castle Magic one-shot RPG that takes some of the ideas from Castle Magic and pulls it into a scenario. It's hilarious. It's, a, again, a little too long but has the same kind of adorable mistrust of your fellow party. So one game I wanted to bring up, which has a lot of deduction elements, but is certainly not a deduction game, is Love Letter. You know, I don't know where we're going to talk about Love Letter either. I have literally no idea. It's the tiny little game, and the rule book is thicker than the rest of the components because the rule book has a story in it about the fantasy of the universe you're entering into, which is bonkers. <laughs> totally bonkers. I really like the game because it is extremely fast-paced and it is really easy to get people who don't normally play board games to play Love Letter because it is extremely simple, right? You you have a card on your turn, you draw a card, and you play one of the two cards. And your goal is to, at the end of the round, either have the princess or have the highest number that's not the princess. And the princess is dangerous because if you have the princess in your hand, you're forced to discard her for any reason, you're out of the round. And so really it's about eliminating people from the round until you're the only person left in the round. And then if you get to the end, well, okay, cool. Now there's a tie-breaking mechanism to determine who wins at the end of the round. And it goes really fast. Like with a group of people who've played before, you can play a round in a minute or two and you play a full game in like 20 minutes. So Yeah, I am a big fan of Love Letter. It is, I think the most impressive game in a small set of components I've ever seen. Like you were saying, the reason that we've got this into the honorable mentions is because the game goes by so fast, it's almost like, are you deducing anything in it? And there are definitely moments of deduction. But when I play this game, I'm just like, okay, cool. Which of these two cards will not make me lose? <laughs> right, exactly. It doesn't feel like a deduction game to me. I do love the game, but I mean, deduction is a thing that might happen occasionally if I get lucky, but I'm mostly just trying to prolong my own death. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. There is one other game that didn't make our list that Brian added to the list, and it broke my heart to talk him out of and make sure it got removed. <laughs> That's Old Town from 2000, published by Clickerspiel and designed by Stefan Rydell. And Old Town's gone through three editions, two other games called Fleet 1715 and Gad's Hill 1874. It's an unusual game because it's not deduction at all. It's kind of an induction game. You're presented with a blank slate of a Western town with spots for buildings and your objects to present clues that nail down the position of a building into, okay, it has to be here. If the barbershop was on the east side of town, then the sheriff's office has to be across the street kind of thing. Totally. And you get points for that. And the game is absolutely compelling and feels so much like a deduction game. I can't blame Brian for putting it there, but isn't, sadly. I enjoy it. It's, like Frank says, it's been through a number of editions and never really been a hit. And then the last one I wanted to mention in the sort of deduction plus category is one that I kind of bought on a whim at, uh, I think it was PAX Unplugged, after seeing a demo. 
and I wasn't sure it was actually going to be any good, but it was interesting enough that I got it, and I've since played it with our group, and it's a hit. It's called Cursed Court, released in 2017 by Atlas Games, designed by Andrew Hansen. Basically, you have a 3 by 3 grid of nobles on the board, and at the start of the game, there is one card per player, and they're arranged between you and the player on the left, the player on your right, and you can see that what's on the two cards on either side of you, and they're going to be two of those nobles that are on the board. And then each season, an additional card is played out. And what you're doing, functionally on your turn, is betting on certain nobles or certain arrangements of nobles. You can say, like, I bet there's going to be at least one of this noble in all the cards at the end of the game, or I bet all the nobles in this row or in this diagonal or whatever are going to be there. And basically each season, one additional public card is revealed and there's one additional round of betting. So you don't have enough information to do a lot of things, but watching where other people are betting lets you make those decisions. So there's a little bit of deduction, a lot of bluffing. The betting mechanism is interesting because it doesn't matter if you have one token or ten tokens on a piece, you're going to get the same score. All it means is that somebody else has to spend more to knock you out of that space. It's like mm. double, like literally yeah. double what you yeah, put exactly. down. So if you put enough tokens in the space, no one else will get that from you. It's it's great. I, I love in that in the game, like you'll look around the table and see how many tokens everyone has left. It's okay. Based on the number of tokens everyone has left, this is a bid that can't be outbid now. And then someone gets knocked off somewhere else and gets back some tokens. Like, oh crap, I didn't do math good. <laughs> It's another one of those games that is simple, yeah. Yeah. but there's a lot of cool stuff going on, and now that, that I, game I dig it. Definitely has a great headspace. Like just when you're playing the game, like trying to parse out, okay, why would Frank play there unless he can definitely see these two nobles? Because otherwise, that would just be a dumb move to make. All right, or he's or screwing me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is me. That one's a lot of fun. Like I said, I don't think it has been as successful as I think it deserves. So yeah, that is our overview of deduction games. If you have favorites that we have slighted or ignored or just want to remind us of, please post and tell us about it. Or if you want to see any kind of particular group of games covered, whine, bitch, moan at us about basically putting those. I or, think we... or you can just click on the poll if that's easier. You don't need to be, you know, whiny about it. But you can. I mean, we're good with that. Yeah, totally. And uh, as always, we appreciate those of you who put reviews up on iTunes. We would be happy to have more of those. Hint, hint. They really do help. And they do. So, until episode 11, farewell for now. Bye. 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 We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. Antonine Bazaar. And it is a... Antoine Bauza. Oh, my Antoine lord. Antoine Bauza. <laughs> Antoine Bauza. Antoine Bauza.